Hello, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Hardwood Knocks. This is Adam Frommel here with my fantastic co-host, Dan Favalli, and it is a mailbag day. We're going to be going through NBA draft, NBA free agency questions that we've received, questions about the upcoming 2021-22 season. We have some historical questions thrown in as well, and whatever you'll have for us live on Green Room as we get going here. But before we hop into any of the mailbag questions, I have a question for you, Dan, and it's how's it going? I'm just laughing at Noah, whose podcast I will be appearing on soon. Um, Stick to Sports Podcast. It's 3.16, not 3 o'clock. It's funny because I just said that to Adam before we went live. It was worth it, though, for the questions that were coming. I'm doing fantastic. I'm in the middle of a a 48-hour fast, um, and I have like uh, only a few hours before I break it. So I'm I'm excited. How are you doing? I've been eating on your behalf. I appreciate that. That's how I've been doing. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, I appreciate it's, uh, that. It's been a struggle, but you know, it's also a good one. Um, do you want to get started here? We had some Absolutely. We had really good We're 16 questions. minutes late, so I, I feel like we should just dive right in. Yeah. Um, <laughs> let's start with let's get some of the let's get one of the historical ones out of the way. This one was fascinating from Tony and 148 others. It sounds like a lot of people are running that account, but it's actually Anthony Merlacci, I believe. Who is the youngest team to win an NBA championship and will the Hornets get it? Let me answer the latter question. No, at least not next season. But please carry on after that, Adam. This is all you. I mean, the Hornets are going to be pretty fun. You're just going to rule them out outright like that so fast. Like They, they had some good offseason moves. LaMelo Ball could make another jump in his sophomore season, and they probably still won't win a title. But, you know. Look, we have a question about the Hornets, and I'm about to shower them with praise, but they're not winning a title. <laughs> that's, that's not happening. So I, to, to research this one, I, I turned to uh, some GitHub databases uh, using Gene Slaw's information here. He calculated weighted ages of teams that have won an NBA championship. So basically not just weighing everyone equally, but determining it by how much they, time they actually spent on the court. You know, obviously when we're calculating an age for an overall team, if somebody plays five minutes and somebody plays 2000 minutes, those should not be considered equivalent and they aren't here. The answer surprised me. I think it surprised you as well because it's the 1976-77 Portland Trailblazers who had a weighted age of 24.199. I think I was a little bit surprised here because we just picture Bill Walton as an older guy no matter what. But this was his age 24 season. It was Maurice Lucas's age 24 season. Lionel Hollins was 23. The only 30-year-old on this roster was Herm Gilliam, who was 30. So this was a really young team, uh, a year and a half younger than the 1955-56 Philadelphia Warriors, who are in second place. The only modern team in the top 10, um, and by modern I mean like beyond the 70s, uh, is the 2014-15 Golden State Warriors, who were at 26.393. I was a little bit surprised that we haven't had any other in the last three decades that have knocked out the, the plethora of teams from the 50s. I'm also a little surprised the Warriors are on that list, but now that I'm thinking back, 2015 was quite a bit ago, and so I'm just remembering the Warriors getting old in real time right now, so maybe that's not so surprising. On the flip side, do you want to guess which the oldest title-winning team by weighted averages in NBA history? Oh, damn. It's got, is it the 97-98 Bulls? Nailed it. Can you get number two? No, come on. Don't do that to me. Is it the 96-97 <laughs> Bulls? It's not. They're number four. Uh, number five is the 2006-07 Spurs. Number four is the 97 Bulls. Number three is the 1969 Boston Celtics. And number two is the 2011 Dallas Mavericks. Which makes sense. Jason Kidd, Tyson Chandler, Dirk Nowitzki playing such big minutes. That one was not surprising. And this might all be good news for the Lakers who were getting dragged because they were too old, which I like. I got the jokes, you know, jokes first, facts later, but they did sign. They re-signed Talon Horton Tucker. The Monk's not that. Malik Monk's not old at all. Kendrick Nunn's even fairly young, but I think that's good news for the Lakers. Speaking of the Lakers, which means speaking of LeBron, which means speaking of this question from Glenn, how many of LeBron's teammates all time have had a higher one season one season usage rate than he has in the same season? Yeah, we love this question, and it, it, it is the reason that we're 16 minutes late because we we, we went through year Way by to year. Go, Glenn. <laughs> yeah, I mean the question came in a little late, so like we didn't have much prep time here. But there are a handful. I'll start with the uh, the cursory mentions because they're kind of ridiculous. 
In 2004-2005 on the Cleveland Cavaliers, Luke Jackson topped him in usage rate in a grand total of 43 minutes that season. And the other ridiculous ones are 2010 Cleveland Cavaliers, Kobe Carl had a higher usage rate in five minutes. 2014 Miami Heat, DeAndre Liggins in one minute, also had a 124.1 PER that season. Uh, That's high. For whatever PER is worth. Uh, and then in 2017 on the Cavs, Dante Jones topped him in 12 minutes. But there are two legitimate answers here. Uh, the first one is on the 2010-2011 Miami Heat, where Dwayne Wade had a 31.6 usage percentage and LeBron had a 31.5. So Wade just ahead by a tick there. But then if you look at assist percentage, because usage rate doesn't incorporate passes into the equation, LeBron was at 34.9 and Wade was at 23.5. And we saw a similar story unfold on the 2017 Cavaliers, where Kyrie topped him 30.8 to 30.0 in usage rate, but was behind 29.7 to 41.3 in assist rate. So basically, I think what all of this means in sum is that if you want to be more involved than LeBron James in a LeBron James-led offense, you can't play more than 50 minutes. That's fair enough. But, I mean, look, Liggins is clearly the best teammate he's ever had. We're just going by PER, right? If we're going, I mean, he had like a 45-point-something box plus minus. He, he had like 2.2 win shares for 48 minutes, which is objectively ridiculous. So Liggins might be the best player of all time, and he should have gotten more minutes. On a permanent basis, yeah, he might be, yeah. he might be the GOAT. Yeah. Uh, let's get to these like last two, since people are in here, we'll get to these last two non-free agency questions before we dive into these macro offseason outlooks. This question came from Jim Doyle. Are Michael Beasley, Kenneth Fareed, and Brandon Knight the oldest players rostered in Summer League? Uh, the answer is yes and no. Michael Beasley is, in fact. And yes, I did go through all the Summer League rosters for this. If players Another reason added, we were 16 minutes late. If players were added um, after this fact, then and I'm wrong, I apologize. But Michael Beasley, age 32, is the oldest player in Summer League. The second oldest is Kenneth Fareed, age 31. The third oldest, also age 31, is Jordan Crawford. Not to be confused with Jordan Crawford. This is with an O. And Jordan Crawford played in France last year, I believe. Um, I did go through this, and I used 1992 as just like sort of an empty benchmark here. But there are fewer than a dozen players in Summer League who were born um, in 1992 or earlier. So you had Beasley and Kenneth Reed were born in 89. Crawford, Kyle Fogg were born in 1990. Austin Hollins, Tariq Black, and Brandon Knight were born in 91. Joseph Young, um, Giannis Tima, Gary Payton II, and Samaj Christian were all born in 1992. Does that surprise you? Because I think like Summer League is definitely the, the showcase event for these younger guys who are trying to get a two-way contract, trying to earn a roster spot. But there are also so many players who have developed – their games substantially in in international leagues and then are attempting to come back. So I, I'm always a little bit surprised the teams aren't taking flyers on more over 30 guys. You know, like we saw Mike James come in for the Brooklyn Nets and make like a legitimate impact after developing overseas for a few years. And it feels like that might be a market inefficiency for the NBA. There's such a there's such a proclivity to give these minutes to the youngest guys without giving the older players who have honed their craft overseas a chance to thrive. Yeah, I think it's one. I definitely think it's an optics thing where guys don't necessarily want to be in some like J.R. Smith. Like if he had a chance to get an NBA roster, if he went to summer league, maybe just wouldn't want to go to summer league. Uh, the other thing is I think for a lot of these teams, like let's look at the Lakers uh, and I'm forgetting their summer league roster already. Maybe there is a bunch of old dudes on there. I don't think there were though, if I remember correctly, this is like their best chance to get real looks at the young guys because they're not going to play them in the regular season. So probably something to do with that. The other thing is I do think guys, older guys might be more inclined to maybe roll through the G league than they are the Vegas um, mm -hmm. summer league, just because it's a, the, the competition level is going to be higher just based off the players that are playing in the G league. And there's a larger sample size to go with. I will be an advocate of, you know, well not post pandemic at the moment or mid pandemic, I should say, you know, Vegas is like a fun place to go like before now and hopefully if things ever get back to normal. So I don't know why other guys, like older guys wouldn't want to want to go there for summer league. But I think that all those contributing factors enter into it. Let's go. Yeah, that's fair. I've, still just a dozen. I, I'm surprised it's not higher. Yeah, I was I was a little bit shocked, too. And there's like there's only um, three players older than the age of or four players older than the age of 30. 
which I thought I thought that number would be a, a scotch higher. Right. This this next question comes from Atlanta Hawks fan page, so that's Adam's burner account. Uh, Trey Young or Steph Curry at age twenty two? Who's better? Now I tweaked this and went with just their third seasons because Steph's age twenty two season he was a sophomore. And Trey was in his third season, so I feel I'd rather more align it with their experience in the NBA. Um, that's maybe not ideal because Steph only played in 26 games during his third season. So perhaps I should just flip it back to Steph Curry. Do you want to go with Steph Curry's age 22 or age 24 season now, Adam? If we're going to write I off the I mean, I, I kind of feel like the answer is the same either way. And that it's Trey came in hotter and was at a slightly higher level at that stage of their respective careers, because it wasn't really until 2013, 14 where Steph like had put the ankle problems behind him and had blossomed into that flat out superstar. The shooting numbers were there early in his career, but he hadn't developed into the same playmaker, the same adequate defender, the same game warping force as an off ball relocation weapon. I think that just because the NBA has evolved to a point where someone like Trey can come in and make such an immediate impact. He definitely has a little bit of a head start in this particular competition, and it doesn't mean that he's going to reach similar heights to the ones that Steph has reached and is continuing to reach. But just in terms of that early career comparison, Steph got off to a slow start. It's hard to remember that now. But between the ankle injuries and you know trying to, to work his way into a rotation with Monte Ellis and the coaching changes and all that, like... It, it, he wasn't winning MVPs right out of the gate. Yeah, I would say the Monte Ellis factor is the bigger one, is that Trey Young has had an opportunity that early career Steph Curry never did, aside from the health. So if you look at their third season specifically, Trey Young had a 33 usage. Steph Curry had 24.3. So that's like nine points higher, essentially. Uh, and he still, look, Steph was more efficient. Uh, they, he, so Trey Young averaged 6.7 three-point attempts per 36 minutes. Third year, Steph Curry averaged six, hit them at a 45.5% clip compared to Trey's 34.3. Now, I'm sure the level of difficulty on Trey's, just given how common ultra-deep threes off the dribble now are, were a little bit higher. Steph also hit 51.4% of his twos. Trey was at 49.1. I think what Trey has done that has never really been this huge part of Steph's game is Trey got to the line, free throw attempt rate of point four nine one in year three. So they're, like, they're not natural comps, but I think more than anything, you would expect Trey Young's numbers – to be more glitzy because he just came in and the Hawks were his. And Steph, for a variety of reasons, I would say the most notable of which is Monte Ellis being there. Uh, and then injuries. Again, we're talking, he only played 26 games this season. That did kind of slow his, his progress relative to what Trey Young is doing at the moment. This is terrible math and nobody should ever do it, and I'm going to do it anyway. But if you add up the per 36 free throw attempts, for Steph's first three seasons, that number is still lower than Trey Young's in his third season alone. Again, like there is no mathematical validity to just adding per 36 numbers like that. It's more just this interesting anecdote. Thank God we don't brand ourselves as like a math-specific podcast. <laughs> you know. Uh, let's get to that Hornets question then. We're getting into the, the stuff that actually happened now. So Jake G asks, did the Hornets improve this offseason and did they make the correct move not trying to overpay for a center. My take is yes, we improved, and that Mitch knows what he's doing, so trust in Mitch. Uh, so I'll take the lead on the, the free agency stuff here. I do think Charlotte got better. The Kelly Oubre Jr. signing I really liked. He's going to – they needed wings. Like you have Gordon Hayward, and that's kind of it. I don't really consider Miles Bridges a wing, even though he can kind of play the three and the four. Um, going from Devontae Graham to Ish Smith is definitely a downgrade, but – you did get a first-round pick in the Devontae Graham sign-and-trade. You have Terry Rozier. You have LaMelo Ball. Devontae Graham isn't coming off the best or the healthiest season. So I think they got good value there. I did like the Mason Plumlee addition. As I liked the trade for that got them um, Kai Jones uh, because they gave up. Oh, I don't even – don't get me started on the Knicks accepting this heavily protected pick for that spot. So I, I like their business in some, and I do think they are a better team. It's just bake in a second-year LaMelo ball. And I think Mason Plumlee is solid on offense. Uh, he's going to force you to play a very specific way on defense. And if you try and move him away from the basket, it's going to get dicey. But you're not really built to defend anyway. You were playing so small that last season that maybe this is just an upgrade by virtue of having more size or more operable size in heavier minutes. At the same time, 
to the center point, could they not have gotten Cody Zeller back for more than the minimum that he signed with Portland? And he was like, okay, in switching schemes for them last year. And the other thing I'll say, I, it had Rashawn Holmes gotten like $18 million, I might've been, oh, they didn't have to overpay for a center. He re-signed just for early bird rights in Sacramento. I was floored. That just averages out, you know, it was like four years and 46. It was misreported at 55 at first. Everyone caught it. It was illegal because the Kings didn't have cap space at that number. So if Rashawn Holmes was just going to follow the bag, then yeah, I would have liked to have seen the Hornets had been like, hey, here's four fifty six or something, because that's not overpaying for Rashawn Holmes in my book. Overall, though, and look, the James Booknight pick, I think that was, you know, they needed wings. And I, I, I like the idea of having him there as well. So I do think they're a better team. They're still unsettled at center. And I don't think they have like a really good defensive wing at this point. Kelly Over Jr. is probably your, or maybe maybe it's Miles Bridges if you want to say that he's going to defend a bunch of wings. I just don't know when you don't have the best defensive centers behind you at the moment. Like Kai Jones is not going to be uh, contributing from day one. Vernon Carey, if they play him this year with the with the the big league team, like he's not going to give you a ton defensively either. So you probably want to be sturdier on the perimeter defensively than you actually are. But I don't know why you would. I think they've sneakily had a rock-solid offseason, I would say. I think the best thing about their offense, uh, their offseason is that they didn't try to do too much. It would have been nice to see them make that big play for Rashawn Holmes, for Jared Allen, even though he signed at a pretty expensive price point um, to return to the Cleveland Cavaliers. But they didn't do anything wrong. Um, you know, Devontae Graham is, is a significant loss, but you you replace him with Ish Smith, you can give more minutes to Grant Riller, and I say that, you know, without a hint of bias there. Brad didn't Wanamaker they cut can him? do something. Didn't they cut who? Grant Riller, didn't they wave him? I thought I sent you if like they, a if they in did, memoriam then I missed text that. that happened. I I don't think so, unless I've just totally yeah. missed something, but we'll he's have to no look that up member now. Of the- He's no well, longer a member of the He's going to be freed somewhere. Yep, Maxwell Millington says that as well. I, I apologize. This is gutting. This well, is then gutting they had a terrible offseason. <laughs> this is I, – I have changed my tune here. Charlotte fucked up. And That's clearly, all I, I That's all I got. I need, I need a moment here. Clearly, I – I, I, I can't believe I'm finding this out on a live episode. <laughs> I, I thought – I could have sworn I texted you to, like, condolences, but you were probably on vacation. I didn't want to bother you. Maybe that's what happened. But. That's the issue is that I was on vacation for some of these moves and just totally missed it. I think, Damn. look, I think I will say. I, need, I but, need like a minute to recover my composure here. It's okay. I'll, I'll vamp to the kids for a second. I, if you're, again, I think the Hornets had a rock solid offseason overall, even if there were things I would change. Like maybe Rashawn just wanted to stay in Sacramento because he hit like 99% of his floaters. Um, and he's just, he's a really good rim runner. And I think he's better on defense than people uh, give him credit for. But overall, I think you could say that the Hornets with cap space are one of the most terrifying propositions if you're a, a, a Hornets fan or even a Hornets fan adjacent just based off some of the past decisions they did, and including the Gordon Hayward contract, which I think looks a lot better now, but it was killed in the moment. The fact that this is what they did where they just kind of, you know, they, they picked up some assets for Devontae Graham. They did letting Malik Monk walk outright was a little bit curious, but he ended up signing for the minimum. So th- clearly people were lower on him than after this season. I expect them to be. Um, I don't know if there was, I think he had an ankle injury to end the year. So maybe that was part of it, but uh, his career trajectory trajectory has been all over the place, but I think they didn't do anything damaging. And so you have to credit them for that. And I do think they just made some, some nice moves. So uh, the Grant Riller decision aside, I think their off season has been I mean- better than fine. Yeah, and you can count on so much internal improvement here, too. Just, I mean, we saw how much the LaMelo Ball-Miles Bridges connection developed during the second half of the season. Year two of that should be incredibly exciting. They, they seem to be in a better rhythm with how to deploy Terry Rozier next to LaMelo Ball and in his stead. That should be exciting in year two, if Gordon Hayward can stay healthy. This is still an immensely talented team. It's probably not going to be the youngest team to win an NBA championship. You know, to cycle back to the very first question. Not without Grant Riller on the roster. Not without Grant Riller on the roster. We have a question from Carrigan. How much better did Utah get upgrading from Derek Favors to Hassan Whiteside, um, George Niang to Rudy Gay, and adding Eric Paschko and Jared Butler? Not to mention they didn't really have to give up anything huge. Look, I am, I will say, anytime teams have to trade away first round picks that are that far into the future to lop off uh, money, 
I think it's a concern. And so the Jazz right now, they traded away number 30, which at that point, given where Jared Butler fell, I, I probably had Jared Butler in the top 15 of my big board. Teams must be mega concerned about his health. I think he's going to be a fantastic player. I'm interested to see what kind of opportunity he gets in uh, in Utah. I, sort of, I think he's just someone who can be, maybe he'll give you like a good amount of shot creation at some point, but someone who could be like a smaller 3 and D type player and if he's healthy. So I think that's a great pickup for them, which I think he was at number 40. I couldn't believe how, how much he fell. Uh, I think Eric Paschal is interesting. I'll be curious to see how they kind of use him. Um, I'm assuming he'll play a bunch at the four, but is he someone else you could slide to the small ball five? Uh, and to wrap up the my tangent about the picks, they have their 2022 pick is owed to Memphis, top 16, top six or top eight protected, whatever it is. And then they now have 2024 pick um, was sent out as well. I believe is part of the favor salary dump in Oklahoma City. So I'm I'm ultimately fine with that because they still paid Mike Conley and they're still very much as of now. We'll see how the off the rest of the offseason slash they have the entire regular season to duck it. But their tax bill is gonna be pretty damn pricey. And you know, you look at yeah, last season they were in the tax sort of. Like it was a sub five million dollar tax bill. Uh this year. Their tax bill is going to be closer to thirty million at the moment, and so I commend a team like Utah in that market. For as of right now, you still made yes, you locked off salary, but you made some buy now plays, and I love the idea of Rudy Gay as a small ball five because I still think this team lacks athleticism on the wings, and that could come back to bite them because there are certain matchups where it's not that Rudy Gobert is a liability; it's that everyone in front of him is such a liability in that matchup that you're asking him to do too much at that point, and that's how he gets into trouble. So Rudy Gay is a five. I think if you go up against the Clippers again, who won't be at full strength probably without Kawhi, and you need to downsize for a little bit, I think he, and to a lesser extent, Eric Paschal, give you that option. And so I, I very much think that their offseason so far has flown under the radar. And look, as of right now, they have not traded Bojan Bogdanovic, six man of the year Jordan Clarkson, or Joe Ingles as part of a move to, to cut their tax bill. Maybe that's to come. I hope it's not, but just looking at their what everything else that they've done on the margins, I think this is a team, even though Kassan Whiteside is a better fit for them than Derek Favors, full stop. It's just, it's the same archetype of player on offense as Rudy Gobert, uh, nowhere near as well. Uh, it's good. I want to make that clear, but it's easier for probably a, a Mike Conley or a Jordan Clarkson or even a Donovan Mitchell, like to just get used to playing with that same type of, of lob, screen setter, lob catcher type player. So I think they had a really good off season and I'm very curious to see how I don't think it'll be often, but I am curious to see like will they go to maybe is Rudy go is Rudy Gobert is Rudy Gay at points like just their primary backup five. I think it's an interesting proposition and I, I think they did well to get him. They're really their glaring void is still just the athleticism on the wings. They they need that bigger, quicker wing defender that they just don't have. And that comes with the caveat of every single team either needs that guy or wants more of those guys. I'm excited to see what Pascal can do as another offensive initiator, creator um, on the second unit. You know, if you have him with his ability to to break down bigger defenders with the spin moves and the quickness, and you have Jordan Clarkson who can create a shot at the drop of a hat, and you have Rudy Go Rudy Gay floating on the wings, ready to crash towards the board on a cut. Like this is an exciting second unit. And you, we know how strong Utah's starters are. I'm also excited to see what Hassan Whiteside can do with a little bit of defensive development. He has not really played alongside or behind a dominant defensive big basically forever. And we know that he has the natural physical talent to be a game-changing force on that end. We've seen him do it in spurts where he can challenge for a triple-double with blocks. But he's always been prone to to chase rebounds at the expense of making the right box out player to chase blocks and set it up for an easy dump off and layup while he's in the air. But practicing with Rudy Gobert, a generational defensive presence every day, like if he is able to pick up a few little pieces, a few little nuggets that, that give him more discipline on that end, that could be a terrifying one, two defensive punch. Yeah. And it's it's interesting how far I don't think they necessarily needed it, but it's just interesting how far Utah has leaned into shot creation because even yep. Rudy Gay, it's slow mo at this point, but he can give you some of that. And then Eric Pascal is a guy who wants to get to his spot 
in in the mid-range or post-up. And remember, you know, two years ago, the biggest thing was the Jazz need extra shot creators, and now they just have them for so many of them. I'm not saying Pascal and Rudy Gay are going to win them a playoff series, but it's just interesting how the dynamics of this roster has changed. I will say, would you argue there is? I guess it's equal, not more, but there's like they haven't done anything to alleviate the pressure on Rudy Gobert, correct? Defensively, no, they've not. I mean, I think that you can more reasonably play Whiteside as like a ridiculously poor man's simulacrum of his defensive impact. Um, And they didn't necessarily have that in the past because even if Favors is a good interior defender, he's never been as comfortable switching out onto the perimeter, uh, providing those chase down blocks within the half court set that Gobert is so good at. So even if Whiteside is remarkably inferior on that end of the court, he at least offers them a chance to like play a somewhat similar style. And they haven't had that. The, they really, I thought, and he's not the Josh Richardson that he was in Miami two years ago, but had they had been able to pick up Josh Richardson, or I even thought this, I think this, he has more trade value at the moment. Maxi Kleba or Josh Richardson, both, well, Maxi Kleba is still a Maverick, but both Mavericks last year. Those were just two players where I'm like, I know you could do this with any player, but I was just looking at like mid-end type players who could make a huge difference. And I'll do this a lot with all the teams, but with Utah's like, if you put Maxi Kleba or Josh Richardson on this team, I might be inclined to make them the West favorite next year. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's just something to watch. Uh, I'm loving these questions about like, we have some flagship market questions, but I'm loving these like non-glamour market questions. And anyone who's here in the room wants to ask questions. We're not, we have questions for days here teed up but if anyone has any questions feel free to get at us dustin asked did sacramento get better by trading delon wright for tristan thompson so okay the your backup center minutes with tristan thompson and alex len um instead of Hassan Whiteside this year basically yes but delon wright is the better player than tristan thompson overall it gives you more optionality my favorite word on defense and he gives you more of a steadying presence if you want to have him run the second unit. We saw it, maybe not so much, you know, towards his talent of his time in Toronto, and maybe not a ton while he was in uh, Detroit. But like he can captain certain units against second stringers. And now you have Davion Mitchell there. I get the move because you just had so many guards: Terrence Davis, Davion Mitchell, De'Aaron Fox, and Tyrese Halliburton. And Buddy Heald, by the way, who was not traded to the Lakers. Like, Buddy Heald is a wing at this point for you because your only other, I would say, real wing is actually Robert Woodard, the, the second. I mean, if they're going to play Mo Harkless at the three or Harrison Barnes at the three, I like both those guys way better at the four. Maybe I'm not giving Kyle Guy enough credit here, but I, it made sense for a fit and what their rotation needed based off their guard long jam. But I don't think they're a better team because they traded DeLon Wright for Tristan Thompson, if that makes any sense. Yeah, I'm in a similar boat where I think it's mostly just a lateral move. In a vacuum, DeLon Wright is a better player than Tristan Thompson. I'm not sure it's that close. But you do fill a, a bigger position of need with Thompson. And especially with Davion Mitchell coming into the fold, you open up more minutes for him and for Halliburton. This Kings team, maybe it's ready to chase a playoff spot, a play-in spot in the Western Conference. It's not a contender yet. So it's more beneficial for the Kings to open up the minutes for those younger guards to test themselves, to learn on the fly, than it is to have the veteran backup point guard who's going to be a steadying force on a team that might not really need anything to be steadied quite yet. Can I ask a Kings question? Yeah, absolutely. Would you be in favor? Tyrese Halliburton and De'Aaron Fox are not moved. You're keeping them. Not moved. Would you be in favor of them making one of the hypothetical trades for Ben Simmons or Pascal Siakam? I would not want to see Simmons on this team, I don't think, because taking the ball out of Fox's hands doesn't really make much sense. Uh, Siakam, though, yes. I think that that would be a nice move that expedites the timeline, but still extends your window. Especially if you're not giving Rashawn Holmes up in that deal. Like you could look Barnes and Bagley as your salary to get Siakam and then flush it out with picks and Davion Mitchell probably. So yes, I I'm actually kind of with you. I wouldn't be, if the price on Ben Simmons is right, where it's like, you know, Harrison Barnes, because the Sixers could use him or buddy healed is like your primary salary filler. You're not giving up 
a shit ton of picks, you could probably talk me into it, but I like Siakam here way better. The other name I thought of is if this team wants to be good but not make an all-in swing, I have no idea what the fuck San Antonio is doing, but if they don't want to hold on to Thaddeus Young, like, yeah, does you San might, Antonio know what it's doing? I think it does because it got a, a, a bunch of stuff from the Bulls for DeMar DeRozan uh, while getting DeMar DeRozan paid. So kudos to DeMar DeRozan, one of the big winners of free agency. But if you could put Thaddeus Young on this team instead of Tristan Thompson as your primary backup five, yes. I would be Farmers and yes, the Kings. But absolutely. Look, it doesn't matter because. I'm not. I wanted Rashawn Holmes to get paid more. I think he's worth way more. But the Kings, the Kings themselves, won the offseason because they got Rashawn Holmes at just an absolute cut rate. We're look. We I thought he was going to go for like eighteen to twenty million per year. I, yeah, I said he was going to get more than fifteen, fifteen or more. And the fact that he did, I, I set the over under at eighteen. Like, <laughs> and look, here's my other thing. I know he's older. He's twenty seven, I believe. Jared Allen is twenty three. Jaron got five and a hundred. Rashawn Holmes gets four and forty six. That's just I, different circumstances. And he's a young. But, we we talked about this on a previous episode too, where he's a young twenty seven. Like he he doesn't have the wear and tear that you'd find from a typical twenty seven year old getting paid for the first time. And if, look, if you ask me, and I know that Rashawn couldn't get a five year deal, obviously, but if you ask me if I wanted the next four years of Rashawn Holmes, or the next four years of Jared Allen, I'm probably taking Rashawn Holmes. It's closer for me, but you know how I am on Allen's skill set. That's enough about the Kings, though. Uh, Tyson Molusk Molusk asked, the Raptors now have like 10 guys who are 6'9 with a 7-foot-plus wingspan. What does the math tell us about this type of roster construction? Um, I think it's – let's ask about what this says about their direction. I think the math says that they have a lot of guys who are 6'9 with a 7-foot-plus wingspan. There's not – there's not a mathematical way to look at this beyond that. I would assume they're trying to be disruptive and ultra stingy on defense is just what this direction look, the, the, shows. The me. last time the last time we saw a team pose with players showing off their wingspans across the entire length of the court, it was the Milwaukee Bucks. And you can check my notes here, but I believe the Milwaukee Bucks are the reigning champions. So like to me this means that Toronto is going to win a title in like five years. I think that's what the math says. I, I, that's foolproof in my, that, that's idiot proof. That's a fantastic way to look at it. I never did. So con- congratulations to the Raptors more seriously though. This seems right in line with just how they've always kind of wanted to build their team. Like you just look at having OG Ananobi, um, you don't like taking a flyer and a guy like that. They've always liked these guys around that size and like not viewing Pascal Siakam as a center. So I'm very interested what they wind up defend, look like defensively. I still think their offseason was just bizarre because they definitely could have gotten more for Kyle Lowry at the trade deadline. I just assumed that they kept him either meant he was they might keep him, that he wanted to come back. Clearly he did not. Uh, or they were going to line up a better sign-and-trade option, which, which they did not. This team is still going to be really good unless they bust it up, which I don't think they should because you know Scotty Barnes is a project, but – Adam, I mean, the minutes with... I loved him as a prospect. Freddie, uh, Fred, Freddie, Fre- like like we're friends. Fred Van Fleet, Scotty Barnes, OG Ananobi, Pascal Siakam, just uh, Chris Boucher. And Chris Boucher, line, yeah. Is going to be just... Look, Ken That's Burks exactly where I was going to go. I was going to I was going to name the exact same quintet and say that Van Vliet, I think, is one of the most underrated defensive presences in the NBA. Barnes is ready to make an immediate impact on the defensive end, which is typically easier to do than to make an immediate offensive impact for a lot of these wing guys. Ananobi and Siakam, Boucher, and like you can still throw... Malachi Flynn! Uh, that dude just right. is an energizer Precious bunny Achua, on you. Another, oh, yeah. uh, another switchable big. Like this, this roster is fun. I don't know how much upside it has in terms of like star power. You know this guy is going to be a number one option. But this feels very much like... 2004 Pistons kind of basketball where the pieces are so good and so malleable that they could be a legitimate title contender without a true star. That is a very apt comparison. Like 2000, they're, they're just going to be very smash mouth. It feels like I do wonder what their shooting's going to look like. What kind of leads me to my question about the Raptors, which also leads into the question we have about the Dallas Mavericks what are you doing with Goran Dragic if you're the Raptors? And I want to make it clear that unless it's post-trade deadline and you don't want him, weren't able to find a deal for him, 
you're not buying him out. It just doesn't make any sense. But as of right now, if you were Toronto, would you rather keep him or would you rather try and find a new home for him? I would keep him. I think he's actually a really good fit for this roster construction now. I have serious worries about his long-term efficacy because the decline seems so obvious. The The explosiveness isn't quite there. The finishing at the rim has been diminished a little bit. The injuries have started to take a hold. But because he's going to be, in all likelihood, a backup point guard on this team. You can deploy him in smaller bursts, get that explosiveness out of him because he isn't shouldering as large a burden, and you're surrounding him regardless of who is on the court with quality defenders who make sure that he doesn't have to expend too much energy on the side of the court he's less comfortable playing. It feels like a really good fit to me. Over, I, It's an overpaid fit, but that's neither for a year there because he's on the roster. The I still think it's ridiculous that the Mavericks, this is per reports, I think Tim McMahon said it on the uh, the Hoop Collective podcast, that they don't want to give up Dwight Powell in a trade for Goran Dragic because Goran Dragic is overpaid, making almost as much as Dwight Powell over the next this season and next. Um, Dwight Powell must have very good connections within the Mavericks organization, if that's just the thought process there. I think Dwight Powell's a good player, but yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah um, Goran Dragic... I think gives them some north-south jet fuel, which they need. Like, replaces that from Lowry. And I, I really think they need his, in theory, his shooting. Just looking at the roster of this team, who are you counting on to shoot at a, at a noticeably above-average mark from three? Fred Van Fleet? Gary Trent Jr.? Gary Trent Jr. And maybe OG at this point has deserved that type of credit. But like, but even then, not- like, those are just the corner threes. Like, you're not counting his, him on him as a wing spacer. No, and like he can do more with the ball in his hands, but he's not hitting pull-up jumpers yet. That's Van Fleet and Dragic at this point. Maybe Gary Trent Jr. a little bit, but that's not really his forte. So I like his fit. Uh, but this is question comes from Miguel Zara. Who is your dream get for the Mavericks? Now, if we were talking about, if we want to do like really pipe dreamy, if the Raptors decide to tear it down, Fred Van Fleet makes too much sense for the Mavericks. Before we answer this question, can we stay with the Raptors for one second? Because I actually want to ask you a Van Fleet question. Um, he has increased his scoring average every year in the NBA from 2.9 to 8.6 to 11.0 to 17.6 to 19.6. All of a sudden, he finds himself on a roster where he is the unquestioned go-to scorer. What is, uh, what, where, where do you set the over-under this year? I mean, like, is 25 points per game unreasonable here? Unreasonable, no. A place to set the over-under, that seems a little high. Just because you still do have Siakam there, who is probably just going to get a higher usage or use more of the possessions as a passer, if not like, if he's not taking more shots, that's a good. That's a you know, it's it's certainly possible. I'm curious. I don't know what Toronto aspires to be this season. So is this going to be like minutes shenanigans where him and Pascal Siakam, if they stay there, are averaging like 27 minutes a game or something like that? So if he plays, I have no idea to expect. I z- zero. Kyle Lowry left, and I still have no idea what the Raptors are doing. Not in a way that I hate it. Again, I don't necessarily like the return on Lowry, but they're still a good team on paper. You kept Masai. That, you know, I can't fail them for the offseason if you kept Masai. So, and this seems like if you're picking a team in the NBA that no one is going to want to play, it's them or Miami. Yeah. Not necessarily, I mean, they're not, those aren't the two best teams, but those are the teams on your schedule where you're like, wow, I better schedule some ice bath sessions after this game. I'm 100% with you. And I don't think they should tear it down. I just mentioned that if you were the Mavericks, they probably don't have the assets to get Van Fleet if he became right. available. Uh, but the Mavericks have been at least interested in Dragic. They're apparently not interested in him at his current price point, but like it's for a season and they still need that type of player. I thought the Dallas fans have been so low on their offseason. I love the Sterling Brown signing. They absolutely stole Reggie Bullock from the Knicks, who, by the way, my one quantum here is, and maybe you feel differently, but had the Knicks found a team to take on Kevin Knox's salary, they could have just carried Reggie Bullock's cap hold, done everything else that they did, and still re-signed Reggie Bullock to the super reasonable contract he signed with the Mavericks. If you're not, you're yep. not going to play Kevin Knox. Stop pretending. That would have been a more palatable route. I'll, I'll get into that a little bit more because we have an RJ Barrett question, but I like the, the Bullock signing. He's just a perfect fit for Dallas. Um, Moses I, Brown is the fun upside play. Um, talk about playing in slow motion, though. But he's he's actually right. monstrous. They should play him, KP, and Boban at the same time, just because. If it's garbage time, and maybe Dwight Powell also. Yeah, um, good old organizational North Star Dwight Powell. Apparently, so 
if I was trying to think of like a reasonable player that they could get, Dragic seems like the one who's the most gettable and I think works for them. I don't know if you just mentioned with the Raptors where you have Van Fleet, you have Siakam, you have, you know, even having Gary Trent Jr., Malachi Flynn, it seems like they're built a little bit better to alleviate the pressure on Dragic better than Dallas is. But just because of how high usage Luka is, I still think Dragic would be like really big for them. Do you think of like any potential gettable player, which it would have to happen via trade at this point, that could really alleviate? I actually don't know that that fundamental assumption is true. I I kind of like, given how much the price point seems to have fallen here, a cheap don't flyer on Dennis Schroeder. All right. I I actually really like that fit. Um, if th- This team has struggled to have that creator behind Luka. Jalen Brunson is a good, steady, low-ceiling, high-floor player, but you it doesn't have that guy on the second unit who's going to take over offensively. Schroeder is not a perfect player. He's an extraordinarily flawed player who drastically misplayed his market this offseason but that might work to Dallas's advantage if it can you know just throw out a flyer on him uh from a purely basketball standpoint I really like that fit it can't I don't think it's going to be them because they already use their mid-level on Bullock so we're looking at him going there I don't think they have their biannual and if they do at most he's going to get there it looks like did Sterling Brown get the biannual maybe he didn't but at most they're, he's not signing for the veterans minimum or the biannual. I don't know why I don't have this marked down where they have in their spreadsheet. That's a that's a fuck. I mean, up unless there are just no chances left, he wants a, a chance where he knows that he's going to get minutes to showcase his offensive ability and parlay that into a bigger contract next year. At this point, it's a reasonable route for him to take. If he yeah, if he's going to get minutes and wants to sign a minimum, by all means, if he's going to do that, uh, go to the Boston Celtics, who just still have their mid level floating around out there. Yeah, that's, and that's totally fair too. But I don't think it's some like totally unrealistic option for this team. They could broker a sign and trade. I just don't know who. Yeah. I don't know who um, they have that the Lakers would want, especially when they do seem at least a little bit concerned Dwight about Powell. their. Yeah. Especially when they seem at least a little bit concerned about their tax bill, given that they did not mm-hmm. re-sign Alex Caruso, which was just that was a very interesting decision. You have Tim Hardaway Jr. back, so sort of chasing a Buddy Heel trade like that. Just I, I like that they've leaned into shooting, but I wouldn't go that route. There's like not a lot of players that spring to mind. Someone like a a De'Anthony Melton or Ty, Tyus Jones doesn't really help you. Even if Eric Bledsoe could be had for free, but you won't give up Dwight Powell. So never mind. That was a terrible suggestion by me. Uh, <laughs> So, like, I just, I don't know. They need another shot creator still, though, because that pressure is on. I thought, one name I thought about was, and this was before Indiana made other moves to duck the tax, but, like, Jeremy Lamb, just as someone who could get to his spots and shot really well from three last year when he was healthy, and they still sort of have this logjam of, you know, guys who are good, not great, and he's going into the final year of his deal, so maybe something could be worked out there. But if you're trying to look at like realistic trade targets, and I think one of the issues here is that Dallas fans really wanted more this offseason. What I'm going to say, I'm here for the jokes because the Mavericks always miss in free agency. It just, there, the options weren't out there. What did you want them to do? Only one team is going to win the Kyle Lowry sweepstakes. And as far as I'm concerned, they, the Miami Heat won it four months ago, five months ago in March, however long ago that was. Um, so I'm not going to, you know, I don't think the Mavericks did anything bad. They didn't. I don't think they necessarily strengthened their position in the West. But who did? Who in the Western Conference got noticeably by far and away better? Did the Warriors even just by virtue of the rookies and Clay will be back by January or whatever it is? Maybe. I mean, Otto Porter is a good fit there, and you know that Clay is coming back. But no. Yeah. So um, the name I'll say this has been controversial whenever I bring him up, but he was one. He shot fifty-eight percent on drives before he was injured. Eric Gordon, two years left on his deal, a little under, I think, $39 million. If I'm the Mavericks, oh, wait, it's probably going to cost Dwight Powell, so never mind. But look, in all seriousness, if you can get Dwight, if Dwight Powell and Willie Cauley-Stein is the cost for maybe a small asset for Eric Gordon just because Powell has that second year left on his deal, I'm doing it. I like it. Um, you're not going to have cap space moving forward anyway unless you're you know clearing the deck in a huge amount of way. And you just need somebody, like Eric Gordon at least, he'll open up the floor more even if the ball's not in his hands, but just someone else other than Jalen Brunson to put some real pressure on the defense outside of Luka, obviously. And that's no knock on Brunson, again. Like, it's just, he's the low-ceiling, high-floor guy, and you need more than that with this team. Yeah, so my dream get for the Mavericks, like I said, would be Van Fleet, but they can't get my dream, so I would say 
pony up for Dragic at this point, or can you look at an Eric Gordon type player? No one cheap comes to mind. You mentioned Schroeder, which I think is if he really wanted to say fuck the money, I'm going to try and build yeah. up my stock, and the Mavericks are like, we will guarantee you 28 to 32 minutes a game or whatever. Then yeah, maybe he considers it, which they very well could do. Um, they could I mean, guarantee that's, him. That. That's a reasonable guarantee given this roster construction. But look, and I have no problem trolling him for this. Normally, I wouldn't for NBA players because I want them to earn as much money as possible. But Dennis Schroeder, um, anti-vaxer, turning down an eighty-four million dollar extension and then ending up with what would be the minimum or something would be objectively hilarious. Uh, so, and I'm assuming it was his decision to turn down that extension. I can't imagine. Maybe I'm ass- assigning too much credit to his agent, but I'm assuming. That that was a you know kind of a Nerlens Noel situation circa what was that 2017 whatever it was where he turned down that Sounds huge deal right. from the Mavericks. Let's get these last couple of questions here. This one's interesting. Um, do you predict any breakout players for the Orlando Magic this season? Hmm. Um, I, I really liked what I saw from Cole Anthony towards the end of the season. It seemed like he gained a lot of confidence in his shot creation ability. Uh, Chuma Okiki is better than people realize. Wendell Carter Jr. is going to be an obvious name because there's not really any bigs to take away minutes from him. Jonathan except Isaac, for, if he's healthy. Except for Isaac, Mo Bamba, Robin Lopez. There are no is- high upside bigs to take away <laughs> minutes from him. I mean, this roster has so many pieces who could answer that question. You know, we still haven't mentioned RJ Hampton or Markel Fultz. You haven't uh, mentioned the number five pick. Well, because it's, I feel like it's hard for it to be a breakout when they're entering as the number five pick. All right, that's fair. I was going to ask you the over-under. That was very intentional. That's fair. The over-under on Jalen Suggs' points per game was set, the last I saw, at 16. How are you not you smashing the over, the over on that over, one? <laughs> who is taking the shots for this team? Like They have a lot of guys who are better with the ball in their hands, but no one who's going to actively take it out of Jalen Suggs' hands. But I... At, uh, please continue. I'm, I apologize for interrupting you on the the non number five pick guys. <laughs> no, I mean there are just so many different options, and it feels like this Magic team is not going to be good, but is going to be fun and feisty. This it doesn't have that established star who's going to carry it into postseason contention. But you know, looking up and down this roster, that it's just one guy after another who's fighting for minutes, who's fighting for a chance to stay in an NBA rotation. And that matters. This is going to be one of those classic plays hard every single night teams that is going to to make it tougher for you to beat them than your typical lottery-bound Eastern Conference squad should. Yeah, I'm hoping I'm hoping it's RJ Hampton just for my selfish agenda purposes. I could also see it being you already mentioned Shumo Kiki. I feel like there's a chance they might explore plumb the depth of his ball skills just based off how this roster is built. So those would be my two picks. I would love for it to be Wendell Carter Jr., but I'm just curious, or even Mo Bamba, I'm just curious, like, what does the signing of Robin Lopez say about their faith in their bigs? Maybe they just don't think Isaac is going to be healthy, so they wanted a third, you know, true center on the roster. Mm -hmm. And I know Isaac's not a true center, but he could definitely play the five now yeah i I mean carter has dealt with injury issues too isaac has obviously dealt with a lot of injury issues so i don't mind that just from a a minutes management perspective let's get to these last two questions which team oh and sorry this question comes from andres oh no excuse me this question comes from juan what team with high expectation is going to have the most disappointing season this year i'll let you answer that one first i i think i have to go right to the top of the ladder and the two the two odds on favorites on basically every Vegas betting market are the Brooklyn Nets and the Los Angeles Lakers. And it, it feels like they're the deserving favorites at this stage, even though the Bucks are coming off a title uh, and the Suns are coming off the, the NBA Finals appearance. But I still have major question marks about the sustainability of this Brooklyn rotation, where there's so much talent, but you're relying on increasingly older pieces. There wasn't enough done to remedy the defensive holes on this team. I mean, if you give more minutes to Nicholas Claxton, sure, that helps. Is James Johnson going to be a difference maker for the defense here? Now you're going to be giving minutes to Patty Mills as well, who's another offense first, definitely not going to do much on the defensive end. So there's so much talent, just an overwhelmingly 
a ridiculous amount of offensive production, but it all has injury concerns, as we saw with Kevin Durant and James Harden and Kyrie Irving all getting hurt at separate portions or having to be worked in uh, to the rotation and, and try to piece together chemistry in these vitally important playoff series. So the Nets, I think they should have the best odds, but there is a potential for a lot to go wrong here. The Lakers case, I think, is even easier to make, where it's another team that has so much talent that it's overwhelming, just for, again from a sheer talent perspective. Is Russell Westbrook a good fit alongside LeBron James and Anthony Davis? We don't really know. It doesn't seem ideal. I would lean strongly toward no. Anthony Davis hasn't stayed healthy in a long time. LeBron had the most significant injury of his career and wasn't necessarily able to reach that same ridiculously lofty level in the postseason that felt inevitable in years past. There isn't that much depth, and the depth that it does have, again, has those age concerns. Like For all the, the trolling that's done, for all the jokes that are being made, enough to prompt LeBron to tweet about it and then subsequently delete the tweet. This is an old team, and it should be concerned about the ages throughout the roster because that does matter coming off yet another shortened offseason. So yeah. it feels like those two have to be the answers. It's interesting because it's tough for me to imagine them being bad, and I, I can't view any team's season through title or bust terms where the Lakers, to me, are just going to be really good, and so are the Nets. But it is interesting, and I agree with you, that as far as title favorites go, both of them are combustible in very different ways. If the Nets are healthy, I do think they're, they are inevitable if they're healthy. But that's kind of a big it's if. It's a huge if. And it's even an if with James Harden just because of how many miles are on his treads at this point because he's been an Iron Man for so long. Is this hamstring stuff going to linger? Is it a harbinger or something else? Kevin Durant missed half the games last season. I imagine that was more out of precaution, but he has an Achilles injury in his rear view. He's fantastic. He basically just won the United States gold medal. So, And then Kyrie Irving is always just dealing with stuff. It's like never a chronic injury. It's just injuries, plural, all over the place. So sometimes not even injuries. And the Lakers, I would argue, the Lakers, I would argue, are more combustible because even if they're healthy, there's that fit with Russ where it's, okay, you'll be good, but your level of good or your level of great is capped because if that's not the perfect fit, if he doesn't start doing more stuff off the ball, you have issues there. And then there's also just the injury concerns. He, by the way, he dealt, he was playing through a torn quad last year and was not good until he healed. It's like, he's not just looking at the miles on his treads. LeBron is going into his age 37 season. Like that sounds like a typo. Can you, can you sound like a typo? That sounds like a typo. Uh, And then Anthony Davis is just, I don't know if he's injury prone. Cause like when he sat out his final season with the Pelicans, a lot of the time it was, that was shenanigans we can call, but uh, he seems just bang- perennially banged up, even when he's playing. And he's always on the ground. It, it scares the shit out of me. So I agree with you that those two teams are combustible. I looked at it as the team that tried to improve the most this season that might be disappointed. And I think it's the Bulls. I wouldn't say they're losers of the offseason because I love Lonzo Ball's fit. I love Al- the Alex Caruso signing. I don't even hate the idea of DeMar DeRozan as someone who, and this is what Kobe White and Lonzo Ball aren't going to do. They're not steadying the offensive ship without uh, Zach Levine on the court. But DeMar DeRozan can. Just how do you fit all your best players together? DeMar DeRozan, Vooch, Levine. I think Levine has gotten better on defense, mostly on ball, though. That, when you look at those three guys, it is a wealth of really bad off-ball defense. That puts an awful lot of pressure on Patrick Williams and Alex Caruso if you're rounding out that five. They are, when you look at their top six or seven players, they're they're mega interesting, but I think can you say? And this is where this is this is the problem in the East. Is the middle class is so deep. If you say Philly, Miami, Milwaukee, and Brooklyn are the top four, do you think Atlanta belongs in that lock tier yes. for the playoffs? Okay, yes. those five teams are locks. Now let's go. There are probably three teams that are definitely worse than the Bulls: Detroit, Cleveland, and Orlando. That's seven teams are left, six others than the Bulls. Which of those teams are the Bulls? Definitely 95% sure going to be better than. I can't, if you want to, I'll go through them. The Pacers? No. The the Knicks? Probably not. The Celtics? Probably not. The... I would put the Wizards in that category, I think. 
just uh, Spencer Dinwiddie with Bradley Beal, Kuzma, KCP. I could say, look, uh, they would probably be the team with like the best chance, but like, okay, fine. That's one. Uh, Charlotte. Are you throwing Charlotte in there? Same situation, I think. So uh, Toronto, you're, you could right. convince me the Bulls are better than Toronto, but if they keep it together, I, I'm probably picking the Raptors over the Bulls. And I think, look, there's, there's risk here because you chose not to renegotiate and extend Zach Levine, even though he was clearly open to it. I get that decision. You match the contract he went and signed on the open market. It's not your responsibility to just give him more money now. You wouldn't have been able to add players, but he's going to be a free agent now in 2022. You've traded the number eight pick in this year's draft, your 2022 pick, and your 2024 pick. That's like, those are, or excuse me, 2023 and 2025. I'm getting my years mixed up here. Those are real issues. And if you miss out on the, like, you could convince me that they don't even make the playoffs. There's a path to them not making the playoffs without them dealing with any real absences or injuries. I think there's also a chance that they could be the sixth seed. I don't think that they're going to be better than any of the five teams we just mentioned, and I'd argue they finished lower than six, but they're the team that just feels like they have high expectations and they're very high risk, and this season could end up imploding all over their faces. Yeah, I think that's totally fair. I'm probably a little bit higher on the fits than you are, but it's a totally reasonable take. I, I would argue, though, that if we're looking at the team that expects to improve and might not by as much as it expects, it might be Miami. I, I would not want to play the Heat. They're going to be brutally difficult to score against. But the shooting is really questionable. How much are you banking on Kyle Lowry as he moves deeper into his 30s in a new location for the first time in forever, learning a new system without much point guard depth behind him. Like that has to be a legitimate nagging fear in the back of Miami's mind. As much as we all love Kyle Lowry and respect the hell out of what he's been able to do in Toronto, that is not a guaranteed star for this team, especially without a lot of shooting to space things out for him. Beyond that, build the best second unit for me. Assuming that Kyle Lowry, Duncan Robinson, Jimmy Butler, P.J. Tucker, and Bam Adebayo are the starters, which is objectively a great, tough starting lineup without much shooting. But build a second unit for me. Well, so am I allowed to use, when he comes back in the middle of the season, Victor Oladipo? Sure. Victor Oladipo, Tyler Hero, Markeith Morris, Dwayne Dedman, and probably Gabe Vincent or Max Struess. Or Opala, maybe, but still, like, ugh. That is, that is, this, there is not a lot of depth here for an older team because aside from Bam and Duncan Robinson, like you're counting on mid-30s Kyle Lowry, mid-30s Jimmy Butler, mid-30s P.J. Tucker, and then some older backups as well. There, there is a lot of potential for things to go south quickly in South Beach. Wow. <laughs> Touche. Um, would you put them, though, in the same category as the Bulls? That feels skews more towards no, no, I the Lakers. But I, I don't think the Bulls have as much expectations either. Like, I, I do think that Miami feels like a playoff lock. But if we're evaluating this team in terms of championship potential, which is the only way that we can evaluate it after making an all-in play for Kyle Lowry like this, I, I don't know that they're close to that. Yeah, so I might put them in like, they're not in the same tier, but like, we were talking about the Lakers and the Nets problems. They're kind of the same because we were talking about health. Yeah. And then yeah. it's similar to the Lakers where I think they have enough shooters now, but Miami shooting is extremely if you, if you place a bet on Miami winning a title this season, that's somewhat reasonable. There's enough talent and there's great coaching on the sidelines that like it could happen. I wouldn't. No, I wouldn't either. I'm, I, yeah, I totally get what you're saying there. Let's get to this last question, which is, is, is the question I've been waiting for. Knicks for Life asks, based on R.J. Barrett's leap in his second year, what will his numbers most likely look like in year three? Historically, do players take another leap in their third year? The latter question I didn't even look into. You could go into year-over-year improvements, but growth to me isn't linear. There's not a recipe for player development. What I do find interesting with R.J. Barrett is he did improve at both ends of the floor by a demonstrative margin from year one to year two, where he shot better than 40% from three. I know he wasn't hitting off the dribble jumpers, but he was a he was just a spacing liability in year one. 32% from beyond the arc. He went from 40.1% um, in year two. And the other thing, I don't know that I've ever seen. Well, all right, I don't want to overstate that. He was really good defensively for a sophomore. 
And what's going to be interesting, I'm wondering, I've tried to talk myself into the rationale between preferring, and I, I get the logic behind, oh, Alec Burks is more shot creation than Reggie Bullock, Nolan's Noel, more defense um, by the rim than Reggie Bullock, obviously, and you don't know what's going on with Mitchell Robinson, whatever. Reggie Bullock was their best perimeter defender last year, and he routinely covered the toughest, highest usage assignments outside of point guards because, by default, that was Alfred Payton a lot, which was a disaster. And Reggie Bullock took on some of those players. You've now decided that R.J. Barrett is going to take on the toughest wing. Have you not? Who's the other player on this roster that is guarding the toughest wing? I, I don't have an answer. Is it is it Alec Burks? It's not Alec Burks. Noel, maybe? It's not Evan Fournier. Like, so is it Quentin Grimes? I don't think he's going to be ready for that. So to me, they've decided that R.J. Barrett's basically a three, which is, you know, maybe that's fine. Now, I'm curious to see whether he can hold up there. I think we need to see more improvement from him on the ball. He's really good off the ball already. I think he's fine on the ball. But it's different if you have to cover stars on a more regular basis. Now, when you're looking at his improvement on offense, here's what I'm curious to see. They are two different players because Jason Tatum, in his first two years, was taking pull-up jumpers at a higher rate. But during his first two seasons, he shot very poorly on pull-up threes, and they accounted for fewer than 11% of his shots in each season. R.J. Barrett is at an even lower frequency, 5% in his rookie year, and then pull-up threes accounted for just 1.9% of his looks um, in his sophomore year. He did have 16.4% of his overall looks come as pull-up jumpers. That is the pathway to R.J. Barrett becoming a superstar. Does he have a pull-up jumper? And whether he becomes a DeMar DeRozan with defense or an actual Jason Tatum uh, comparison, comp, whatever, and it's probably not the best comp, is does the off-the-dribble range extend to beyond the arc? Because we've never seen DeMar be able to hit threes in general. Um, R.J. Barrett's like kind of in between, where I think you can see he gets to his spots in the mid-range sometimes, can be aggressive attacking the rim, but he's not taking off-the-dribble threes. I don't know if he'll have the license to do that this year, because I think less of the offensive onus is now on him following the additions of Kemba, Evan Fournier, bringing Alec Burks back, bringing Derrick Rose back. Whereas Jason Tatum in his year three, uh, he shot the lights out on pull-up threes and they accounted for a crap ton. How many times am I going to say a crap ton on this podcast? But they were a huge share of his offense. Yeah, they were a huge share of his offense. I don't know that that's going to be the case for Barrett, but I do think based off what we saw last season, there is a path to stardom and it's almost a fairly obvious one. It's does RJ Barrett have a pull-up jumper. That's really what feels like is set. We want to see that the defensive improvement is for real. I get that. But that feels like the one barrier separating him from that star trajectory right now. I'll go quickly here because I do want to accommodate the speaker request we just received. Um, But I, I do think this has the potential to be one of those situations where declining or stagnating per game numbers might give a misleading impression. Because I don't think that he's going to score more than 17.6 points per game this season, given the additions and re-signings that were made. Kemba Walker is going to need touches. Derek Rose is going to need touches. Emmanuel Quickly is going to need more touches. Uh, Evan Fournier is a score-first player. Julius Randle is back. You're probably going to want to see more from Mitchell Robinson on the offensive end. But Quickly. we're probably going to see a better... We're, we're pro- I, I think I mentioned him, right? Oh, you might I think Sorry. I think we're going to see a better version of Barrett because there's more defensive responsibility, because he's getting smarter operating as an off-the-ball scorer, because he's developing as a willing passer, it just might not necessarily be reflected in the per-game numbers. So more useful player, but I don't know that we're going to see that star turn this season, just given the newfound depth of the offensive options in New York. That's a, I do. I was going to say, ahead. really quickly, that's a great point, and you could argue that if R.J. Barrett is averaging 17, 18, 19, 20 points a game next season— that's something has actually gone wrong in New York. I agree. I agree. I am going to uh, bring you on now, Alex Edwards. Welcome to the show. How's it going today? Hi, thank you for having me on. Yeah, absolutely. I'm going to assume that you want to weigh in on the Knicks stuff here. Um, A little bit, yeah. Uh, All right. I thought it was interesting because, well, at the time when the Clippers re-signed Nick Batum, I I was of the assumption that Reggie Jackson was going to get let go. So I thought that um, offers would be coming in from the Knicks, and I didn't know that they had the money at the time to re-sign Reggie Jackson. Um, So I thought that the Knicks should make a play at Reggie Jackson. And this might be more of a hot take, but I feel like he's a better player than Kimball Walker. 
that might be a little bit of recency bias or whatever you would want to call it, but I'm just surprised that they didn't really make an offer or at least, you know, try to get them. Dan, I'll let you take this one. No, no, thank you for uh, for weighing in there. Yeah, I think I wouldn't call – look, if Kemba's left knee is just shot, which it might be, then yes, Reggie Jackson's the better player. Uh, although Kemba's baseline, 19 points, 5 assists, 36% three-point shooting, that's pretty high. I think you could argue Reggie Jackson might be a better fit off the ball than a Kemba Walker, and that could have been maybe more interesting for this team. I would argue that – and I'm assuming this is how they didn't know that the Kemba Walker stuff was happening – I would rather have signed Reggie Jackson for this team than Derrick Rose, especially after the Kemba Walker signing and knowing you want to develop quickly and R.J. Barrett just because I think he is better off the ball. Uh, They didn't have the money to do it after re-signing Derrick Rose. The Clippers gave him more using early bird rights. And I'm just, again, I'm assuming because of what they gave Derrick Rose, I know it's only two guaranteed years, but, you know, three years, $43 million in some is pretty big cost for Derrick Rose right now. I think... Um, my guess is that they even, even if they knew it was an ether, that they were even fairly surprised that OKC ended up buying out Kemba Walker. That didn't seem like something that came together until like, you know, within 48 hours, just from my, my outside perspective, also knowing how OKC operates. I agree with you. And I would just add the reason I don't think Rose is necessarily as good a fit for this team as Reggie Jackson, as much as he revitalized this offense down the stretch last season, you know, you and I, both were elevating him towards the top of our six-man-of-the-year conversation. Do you want to count on the shooting being sustainable? Because he's a career 31.1% three-point shooter. He had never before topped the 40% mark. So yeah, he shot 41.1% on threes on 2.6 per game over the 35-game stretch that he spent in New York and then followed that up by shooting 47.1% in the playoffs, albeit in an even briefer stretch. Do you want to count on that? Given all of the history, I and I don't think that you do. I, I just don't think that you can reasonably rely on that type of production once again. You can count on the basket attacking. You can count on him breaking down defenses. But in terms of pull-up jumpers and floor spacing ability, that's probably where you should be focusing more for this Knicks team. Right. And look, it's, it's easy to look back on. I still wouldn't have given Derrick Rose that deal, just to be clear. But it's easy to look back after the Kemba Walker signing. I think he's much less of a great fit with the Knicks following the Kemba Walker signing, but we'll see how their minutes distribution goes. And look, just between the injuries that both Kemba and Derrick Rose have in their rear view, maybe this is sort of just a a give-and-take, tug-of-war type thing where between them you get 82 games of point guard play. Like maybe that's the situation the Knicks are, are entering. This was great, though. Thank you for everyone who strolled through in the room and, and asking qu- um, questions. Uh, this was a rough podcast for Adam. We, have, we appreciate him soldiering through, despite the breaking news a week later that Grant Riller was no longer on Two days NBA. later. Two days later. Let's give me a little bit more credit there. It was only two days. It feels like it was for whatever. It anyway. was reported on August 6th because I immediately looked it up that they were waiving the free agency rights. Well, And we're recording and on August 8th. So unless my guys, math is way off. If you guys are new to the fold, we are Hardwood Knox. Check us out wherever you get your podcast. Just search Hardwood Knox. Ratings, reviews, download every episode. We really appreciate it all, especially on iTunes. If you leave us a rating and write a review, we will love you eternally. We'll probably love you eternally anyway, just for the fact that you're listening. Follow us on Twitter at Hardwood Knox. Follow us on Instagram at Hardwood underscore Knox. We are also on TikTok at Hardwood Knox, believe it or not. We are everywhere. Thank you, Alex. Great podcast in the chats. That was just worth it for that. Uh, We appreciate everyone listening. Until next time, I'll leave everyone with a shout out to Two players who should absolutely be on NBA teams right now. Grant Riller, Frank Nielakina, and then Grant Riller again, because this is Adam's show. Condolences. You have my sympathies. I'm sorry I didn't tell you. I thought I thought I texted you my condolences. I'm a bad, bad friend slash co-host. Thanks for listening, everybody. We'll catch you next time. <laughs>